This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, we want to thank you for your word and we thank you for this magnificent psalm that we've just read. Uh, the psalm of penitence that David has written for us. And we just pray that you'll help us to understand it and to be able uh, to pray it just like David did. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I've always been um, very sensitive to sin. Oh, no, nothing up there yet. Okay, so when I actually sin, I actually feel physically unwell. You can ask my wife, right? So I, you know, I get stomach aches. Stomach gets very upset. I can't sleep. I toss and turn in bed. I get these headaches. I have a very heavy feeling. So what medicine do I take when that happens? Well, the best medicine really is Psalm 51. I found myself coming back to Psalm 51 over and over again. In fact, I bought a little book just on Psalm 51 before. And Psalm 51 is so powerful because it's really considered as one of the most powerful, what they call penitential Psalms written in the book of Psalms. And it begins at uh, the beginning before even verse 1 because it actually gives you the context that was really actually written in. So if your Bibles uh, should have some little preamble before it starts, verse 1 it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the context of this psalm is at the lowest point of King David's life where he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he had murdered Uriah's husband, and not only just Uriah the husband, but also innocent men together with Uriah when he set him up to die. And it's at this point in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where the prophet Nathan, after he comes to him, remember uh, if you look up here on the slide, the prophet Nathan actually came with a parable and uh, David sort of fell into the trap, right? And Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So these are very dark times, very heinous sins that David has just committed. Adultery and murder, not just murder, but multiple murders. And that's where he finds himself in Psalm 51. And what does David do when he writes this psalm? He begins in verse 1 by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Oh, my wife is here. You can ask her how I get physically unwell when I sin. Right? But here, when he looks at his sin, he has no choice but to cast himself like a beggar before God and call on God's mercy. 
Right? He calls on God's mercy and God's compassion, and he says, look, I am nothing but an ultra, a murderer, a fraud, and a liar. But he calls on God's mercy because he knows that God is a God here, as it says, of great compassion and unfailing love, or steadfast love. It is where a sense where he knows that the character of God is that he will keep loving and loving and loving and, and will keep loving even though he sins. And he knows that God is a God of great compassion. Now, when I sin and I read this passage, I think to myself, there is hope for me. Because if David was an adulterer, David was a murderer and a multiple murderer, well, I haven't committed adultery and murdered anybody yet. So if God can respond and David can know that he is, you know, that, that God is a God of compassion, steadfast, great compassion, steadfast love, and unfailing love, then in the same way, my sins can be forgiven. Because if God can forgive David, then God can surely forgive me. And in the New Testament, I think it's very similar to Jesus forgiving the Apostle Peter. Because, you know, the Apostle Peter denied Jesus three times. And I always think to myself, well, you know, if God can forgive or Jesus can forgive Peter when he denied three times, then, then surely Jesus can forgive me too. And because of that, it goes on to say, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now here are images of total forgiveness, right? So to blot out is literally the word erase. You know, when you have a whiteboard and you have a black marker, you erase it and it's all gone. Or, you know, if you have a blackboard and you use uh, chalk, you can wipe it all off. It's the idea where it's gone before God, gone completely. It's not like liquid paper, you know, because you know when you have liquid paper, it's just covered up, right? You can always scratch it off and the word's underneath. But when, when God in His mercy looks at you and you ask for forgiveness, He blots out your sin and He washes it away like a laundry, right, in a sense, and He cleanses it like ceremonial washing. Now, for us as Christians, we know that what David prayed for is real. It's not wishful thinking, right? It's real because... In Revelation chapter 7, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, in Revelation chapter 7, it says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? This is the last day, right? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, I know. You know. He said, These are they who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So where does the erasing and the blotting out and the washing and the cleansing come from? It comes from the blood of the Lamb. It comes from the blood of Jesus which washes you clean. So the first thing we need to do when we sin is to, if you're looking at the outline, right, you know all the letters that you're missing, right, is to cast yourself before God. To cast yourself on His mercy and cry out to God and say, God, I need your forgiveness. But it's not enough to cast ourselves before God. We also need to confess our sins fully before God. So in verse 3, For for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, 
you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 13, the first reaction of David when he had sinned with Bathsheba was to try to cover it up. He called her husband Uriah back from the from the war and tried to get Uriah to go to have go home and have sex with Bathsheba to cover up his adultery. When that didn't work, he tried to get Uriah drunk and send him back, but again that didn't work. So in the end, he killed Uriah. And he thought he was very successful in covering it up because in a way he was. I mean he was the king. Nobody challenged him. And at the end, it seemed as if David got away and covered it up. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his son and bore him, well, his wife, sorry, bore him a son. So for all intents and purposes, David had gotten away with his adultery. David had gotten away with his sin. No one knew about it and he managed to marry Bathsheba. Except that very last sentence, right? But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You see, you can hide from people. You can cover up in this world, but you can't hide from God. You can't cover up from God. There are no secrets of God. So here we see in Psalm 51, David changes 180 degrees. He confesses his sin frankly, freely, boldly. There are no excuses, no deception, no accommodation, no reasons given. Right? Five times he says, Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know that my transgressions and my sin are, is always before you. And against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil. In your sight. See, this is what true confession is. True confession is to stand before God and say, Yes, this is my sin and I have no excuses for it. You know, in uh, Adam and Eve, when they committed the first sin, they weren't altogether very frank in their confession. So remember when God confronted Adam and Eve when they sinned, what did they say? God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? This woman said, The sermon deceived me and I ate. So this is very different from the attitude of David in Psalm 51. right? He doesn't blame God and say, Oh, you know the Bathsheba that you put naked in front of me, showering at the roof, that's all her fault, right? No, he accepts the blame fully as his own. Because many times when we confess to God, we make excuses, right? You know, I've, I, you know I, I saw pornography on the internet, but I was really tired, and anyway, I didn't see very much of it. Or, you know, I committed adultery, but my wife, she doesn't give me very much sex. Or, you know, I was very rude to the person, but that person was rude to me first. But here as we look at this passage, David doesn't make any excuses. His confession is full, frank, and freely given. 
Now verse 4 is a bit strange, isn't it? Because it says, Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now we might ask ourselves, but hey, didn't he sin against Uriah? I mean, after all, he killed Uriah, right? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba because he slept with Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against all those innocent people who died on the battlefield? But the point here is seen in the rest of what it says there in verse 4, right? Because it says, So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See, ultimately, David recognizes that his first sin is against God. Yes, he did sin against Bathsheba. Yes, he did sin against Uriah. But his first sin is against God because God is righteous. God is the creator. God is holy. And as a result, he acknowledges that God is right to judge him. I think that's very important because many times we don't see sin from God's perspective. So I was reading, the. I bought this book from overseas, but I haven't read it yet. It's by this woman called Rosaria Butterfield. You can Google her name, right? Because she recently is in the news. But she was a lesbian for many years and then she became a Christian. But in one of her notes, one of the things she wrote, she said that after she became a Christian, she was still attracted to women. And she realized that sin is still sin, even if you love it. Sin is still sin, even if you love it. But she realized that what she needed to see was to see things from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, then sin as an offense against God, sin as an offense against God's holiness, sin as an offense against righteousness, that is true confession. Even if you love it, because you see it from God's perspective, you see it as sin. And that's what David is doing. He no longer makes excuses for himself. He sees sin from God's perspective and says, look, you are right. You are right to judge me because I'm wrong. It's all me. I'm bad, right? There's, there's nothing else. And what's remarkable is that he doesn't just say that his actions are sinful, but he goes on to say in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful for the time my mother conceived me. Now, what he's saying is that he's not just done a sin, but he is a sinner. Now, in the world that we... Uh, uh, I'm going to interpose, change the order of the thing, right? So, in the world we live in, we always think, you know... Actually, if you come for the first and second service, uh, Rohintan actually made this point. He said, you know, the problem is that we think we are good people. And we are good people who sometimes do bad things. Right? So, if you look at the... Some of the books that, you know, are out there. The question is, you know, why do good people do bad things? Why do good people do bad things? But what David is saying here is that there are no good people. All of us here are sinful. All of us here were sinful from the time we left our mother's womb. Right, so you know the French philosophers used to think, oh, you know, we are, we are born good. We are all innately good. Even rule was good when he was born. But, you know, it's the influence of the evil world and the evil parents who make them evil. But what David is saying here is that there are no good people. We are, from the moment Adam and Eve sin, we are intrinsically born with sin. And that's what David is confessing. 
Now, this ties in very well with 1 John chapter 1, right? Because in 1 John chapter 1, it says very clearly, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word has no place in us. So that's what we need to do. We need to cast ourselves before God's mercy. We need to confess our sins. And indeed, in verse 6, that is the true nature of wisdom. Yet you desired faithfulness or truth in the old translation, even in the womb, and have taught me wisdom in that secret place. See, true wisdom is to acknowledge that we are sinful and acknowledge and confess when we have sinned. So if you want to have forgiveness from God, you need to cast yourself before God's mercy. You need to confess your sins. And then only then, in verse 7 and 9, will you have cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Now it says here that when we cast ourselves on God's mercy, on confess our sins, we have confidence that we'll be washed and cleansed. And the main title, right, the main theme is that when God does that, we'll be whiter than slow. So if you look up here, right, snow is like the most pure thing that there is in nature, right? If you think of pure snow, it's, 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 it's the purest thing you can get. Now, if you think about it from David's perspective, that is amazing, right? He's saying that he, as an adulterer, as a murderer, can be washed to be pure snow. Now, when you think of it, even when you wash your own clothes, right, and you got dirt on yourself or you wash it multiple times, you never get everything completely off, right? It's kind of the clothes fade, they don't look the same as the day you bought it. But, but what is being said here by David in full confidence is that when God forgives, He convinces, com- forgives you so completely that you are like, not even like snow, you are whiter than snow. You're beyond the purity of snow. And as we saw in Revelation, that happens because you're washed by the blood of Jesus. And that's why it says here that let me hear joy and gladness, gladness. let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Because David is so confident of God's cleansing, whiter than snow, he can now feel joy and gladness. So you know, like I told you before, when you sin, you can physically feel God's weight on you. That's what it says here, right? Even his bones feel crushed. That means, right, even to the, to the, what's in the inside of the bone again that people eat? The marrow of your bones, right? There is this ache, there is this soreness, there is this burden of God's wrath pressing on you. 
But to confess and to cast yourself on God's forgiveness then leads you to joy and to gladness, knowing that you're whiter than snow. And so I've met some people, and if you're one of those people, then you need to hear this, right? Because some people actually feel that I've done such bad things that I don't think that God can forgive me. You know, I've done such bad things, I don't think that anybody can forgive me. And actually in the first and second service, Rohintan was talking about how there was someone in his congregation who did something 70 years ago and still hadn't forgiven herself. Right? This person obviously needs to read and understand Psalm 51. Because what it's saying here through the eyes of David is an adulterer and a murderer can be whiter than snow and, and rejoice and be glad knowing God's mercy, compassion and love. So no matter what you've done in your life, if you cast yourself on God's mercy, confess your sins, you can be whiter than snow and we have that joy and gladness again. In verse 10 to 17, it goes on to say, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, if you look at your handout again, We are to cast ourselves before God's mercy. We are to confess our sins. We then will be washed and cleansed whiter than snow. But what is required is also repentance of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's not enough just to confess and cast yourself before God and then want to then go back and sin again. But rather, it says here that David calls on God to create in him a pure heart and a steadfast spirit. It means that David wants to change his heart to be pure and to be steadfast to keep doing the right thing, to keep repenting. Now, I remember many years ago, I can't remember which book I read, it talked about sin as, you know, you're walking down the street and then there's a hole in the ground, and then you don't see the hole, and you fall down the hole, and that's like sin, right? You fell into a hole. Then this book went on to use the analogy to say, you know, there's different sorts of things which can happen after that. So you climb out of the hole, and then you see, and you look down the hole, and think, oh my goodness, there's that hole, sin I fell into. What happens tomorrow? Do you then go down the same street, and then, you know, you, you, you walk around the, and skirt the edge of the hole, you sit by the edge of the hole, and then you fall down again? Or do you choose to avoid the street altogether? Now I think genuine repentance is the calling upon God for a pure heart and a steadfast spirit so that day after day you avoid walking down the street where you know that big hole is. And the reason that David prays this to God for a pure heart and a steadfast spirit is because in verse 11 he calls on God not to cast him from his presence or to take your Holy Spirit from me. And I think that what the context is really saying here when David prayed this prayer is because his predecessor, King Saul, had exactly that happen to him. God removed the Holy Spirit from King Saul, 
God took away his presence from King Saul. And King Saul was no longer favored by God. And that's what David feared. And I think for ourselves too, now that we have Jesus Christ and we have the Holy Spirit, the danger is if we do not repent and have a genuine desire for a pure heart in us, if we continue to keep walking down the street over and again and keep jumping down the hole, then there is a real distinct danger that what verse 12, 11 is saying can be true, isn't it? That we might be cast out from the presence of God. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and no leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, what happens is if you just feel sorry for your sin or you feel sorry for yourself, it only leads to death. But but, but godly sorrow desires purity that comes from God. Godly sorrow wants a pure heart and a steadfast spirit to keep doing what is right. Now, obviously, we're never going to be perfect. Okay, like in today's morning sermon, you know, faith alone, right? We'll never be perfect because you can never achieve perfection. But the desire to do the right thing, the repentance, the steadfast spirit must be evident in our lives. We cannot sort of, you know, sin and then, oh, I'm so sorry, God, and then tomorrow sin again, knowingly and rebelliously at God. There must be some repentance in our life. Now, verse 12, it goes on to say, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, I think here, when it talks about the joy of salvation, uh, the way I read it, and again, you can uh, challenge me during the question and answer time, is that he's asking God to give him the joy of salvation as part of a the, the motivation to do the right thing. Because it's linked with the willing spirit. So this seems to me the opposite of law keeping, right? So I you know I'm, I'm I want to keep the law and I'm gonna keep the law, but rather is is the joy of knowing salvation which keeps David repenting. So I remember um, uh, a few years ago why I gave this illustration, which I then read subsequently in this book which talks about you can change, right? But I think Chim Chester. And he was saying how in Greek mythology, uh, there are these sirens, not, you know, ambulance, but there are these water, angel, mermaid things, which sing these songs, right? And then people on the boats all get drawn to them, and then, you know, it's like Paris of the Caribbean, okay? And then, you know, they get taken, right? So in one of the myths or something, uh, this boat is going, and then they said, oh, you know, you should tie us to the to the boat so that you don't jump overboard and then get taken by these sirens and you put wax in your ears or whatever. But then some other person said, actually, the better, the better way of overcoming these sirens is to actually have this magician or something or somebody who plays really good music to play a, a song which is even better than the siren song. And I think this is a bit like what this passage is saying, is saying, look, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So, rather than seeing the attraction of the sin, restore to me 
the joy of salvation so that the joy of salvation is greater than the attraction of sin. Give me a willing spirit to want to enjoy your salvation, your presence, rather than to enjoy sin. And I think that's very true because for myself, part of the problem, and I'm sure for many people, is that we forget that salvation in heaven will be so much greater than the counterfeit joys of sin. So one of the things that I do with my wife is that, you know, whenever I sin, I always have this deal with her where I deny myself for a couple of weeks uh, some of the things that I really enjoy. Like, you know, like playing golf or, you know, computer games or, you know, stand-up paddleboarding or something. So that it reminds me what I lose in terms of the joy of salvation when I sin. Because that is what helps us to see, helps us to have a willing spirit to want to repent, to look forward to salvation and heaven and, 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 and presence with God and see that compared to what is eternal, the counterfeit sins of this world cannot deliver. So that's why in verse 17 it says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Now, what we see here is that when we repent and we worship God, what God really wants is the right heart. You know, you can give all the money you want to God, you can make all the, you can sing the songs as loud as you want, but unless your heart is right, you have a broken and contrite spirit, God will not accept your worship or your praise or your sacrifice. Now, what does it mean to be broken and contrite? It means that we can't come to God with our head held high, with our chest puffed up thinking we are good people. Right? What David is saying is, we come before God as beggars. We kneel before God, we cast ourselves before God, knowingly, frankly, freely, boldly, acknowledging that we are sinners. We are nothing more than sinners before God. We are broken and contrite before God. So I remember, um, do you all watch Indiana Jones? Okay, I'm sure you all, that was such a long time ago. Maybe only some of the older people know Indiana Jones, right? Okay, but um, before Guardians of the Galaxy, there was Indiana Jones. So anyway, um, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right, uh, they're, they're there to look for this, uh, the mythical cup that Jesus drank from or something so they can eternal life. Anyway, so there are all these tests or something, right? So one of the first tests is that the penitent man shall pass. Oh, you can look at our YouTube right later. The penitent man shall pass. So, you know, he's saying the penitent man shall pass, the penitent man shall pass, the penitent man. So he's like wondering, how do you get past? And the penitent man kneels before God. I mean, that's what how he gets past. The penitent man kneels before God because the person who is broken, penitent, and contrite, contrite, penitent are the same word, kneels before God because they come to God not because they are confident in their own goodness, you know, their head is held high because they are good people, but because they are contrite and broken, knowing that they are sinners before Him. 
And that's how we approach God. Right? We, we have to come before God, we cast ourselves before God, we confess our sins, we repent, we come before Him as broken, contrite people and knowing that we bring nothing before Him. But we cast ourselves knowing that God's mercy, love and compassion will then wash us whiter than snow. So, uh, in conclusion, a few weeks ago, uh, I went out on my SUP, or which is a stand-up pedal board. Okay, anyway, it's inflatable, lah, right? And um, my one is the yellow one, actually. Okay, so when um, when I was I pumped it up and everything, I was going out to the ocean. Just before I went in, the thing exploded, right? The seam, uh, oh, I, I don't know the picture, but the seam broke and all the air puff, uh, came out of it like in about five seconds, right? Then I sort of realized that, hey, you know, if I was 100 meters out in the ocean, how is I going to get back, right? I mean, I could have got back, but it would have been difficult, right? So maybe you would have read about me in the newspaper or something, but that, that's not really funny, lah. Okay? Now I was thinking to myself, you know, that's, those sort of incidents kind of make you step back and think, oh man, that was quite fortunate, right? What is the most important thing in my life? What is the most valuable thing in my life if I was out in the ocean and the SUP had burst? Well, the most important thing is to be forgiven by God, right? The most important thing is to be whiter than snow and to be forgiven completely by God. Because, you know, all the things that I have, they're meaningless when you're kind of like drowning out in the ocean, right? The, the most important thing is to be forgiven by God. And I think Psalm 51 tells us that the way we do it is to cast ourselves before God's mercy, to confess our sins, to repent and to be broken and contrite. And we know that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed whiter than snow. And because of that, we know that we are ready for when Jesus comes again, and we are ready for death. Okay, so let's uh, take a moment to pray about those things. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we want to thank you for Psalm 51. We want to thank you for the encouragement that it gives us, how it teaches us about even how the great sinner like King David could be forgiven, and how even we can be forgiven. And we just need to be contrite and broken in spirit. We need to come before you and cast ourselves before you like beggars for your mercy. To confess our sins freely and frankly and boldly without excuse to repent of our sins and ask you for a pure heart and the joy of your salvation. And therefore, dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here that we will do this day by day. Just as we pray the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us daily. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.